Hello and welcome to this broadcast installment of AZ Law here on member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney Paul Wyke. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this program. This is our first post-quarantine edition of the program and we're so glad to be back bringing you a few of the most interesting articles from the past couple of weeks about our Arizona legal system. Of course, the legal system, the courts did not stop during the stay-at-home order, although it did slow down, go remote, and is now masked. For example, I continued filing and working on a number of cases, including offering pro bono counsel about some of the governor's executive orders. There were challenges to those orders, in fact, court challenges, which I was able to report on by dialing into the hearings from my office. Anyway, lots of articles. Let's go ahead and get started with some of the legal news. Let's go ahead and start with uh, with, a pan- with a pandemic-related challenge. The uh, governor was challenged by a number of media outlets regarding nursing home data and whether the state should have to release that. Here's a commentary from Abe Kwok of the Arizona Republic. This was on June 1st. Governor Doug Ducey won in court on nursing home data, but the rest of Arizona lost. Here's the article. On record, media outlets that had sought the data, including the Arizona Republic, lost. In practice, all Arizona did. Those who have loved ones in any of the 147 skilled nursing facilities. Those who are contemplating placement of a loved one in one of the facilities. Those who advocate for aging adults and public health. And those who want to know where outbreaks have occurred and what the response has been, both by the facility and by the government that provides oversight. State hired attorneys contended in court that releasing the information violates privacy rights and that the state already requires nursing homes to readily provide COVID-19 information to residents, transferring and prospective residents, their guardians and their next of kin. It is one disingenuous argument. Information about a single facility does not make for applicable knowledge or context. Using that line of logic, a prospective resident or guardian would have to call numerous nursing homes to try and triangulate an ideal facility. One is to call 147 places for complete clarity. Ducey may want to watch the May 21st hearing of the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging. In her testimony, the public health researcher R. Tamara Konetska said data collection and transparency is critically important so that we know where to direct resources. Researchers can discern what worked and what did not, and aging adults and their families can make their own best decisions. Decisions, Konetska said, that may be about life or death. Ducey and his administration have been stonewalling on releasing COVID-19 cases and deaths of individual nursing homes from the get-go. At one press conference in April, they deflected and said consumers could do their due diligence and check out ratings of individual facilities. If only those star ratings were an indicator of infection control standards. They are not. Konetska testified that in a study of 12 states that released data, Arizona was not among them, researchers found no meaningful relationship between nursing home quality and the probability of COVID-19 cases. Nor did they find meaningful differences between for-profit facilities and non-profits. Could the same be said of Arizona's data? We don't know. The one meaningful relationship the 12-state study yielded, Konetska said, was one involving race. 
Facilities with the lowest percentage of white residents were more than twice as likely to have COVID-19 cases or deaths than facilities with the highest percentage of white residents. The researchers theorize that nursing homes draw residents from nearby neighborhoods and that facilities with higher percentage of minorities are in poorer areas. Does Arizona have a similar trend on race and COVID-19 cases in its nursing homes? Again, we don't know. The debate over privacy aside, it's a bogus argument, by the way, data could be released without compromising one's identity, Arizonans should be troubled that the governor has articulated little and executed even less about what is being done to protect the most vulnerable population during this pandemic, not just in the state's nursing homes, but also on other long-term care facilities, such as assisted living facilities, despite those, these places accounting for a majority of COVID-19 deaths. And why is that? Here, Konetska's testimony is instructive too. She said aging adults in nursing homes need as much advocacy and help as possible, pandemic or not, because they are ill-equipped to monitor their own care, and they cannot advocate for themselves or exert political influence, especially so on that last point. That commentary from Abe Kwok in the Arizona Republic was on June 1st. Governor Doug Ducey won in court on nursing home data, but the rest of Arizona lost. And segueing into another pandemic-related article, this was an interesting one. Called up for jury duty, here's what it will be like under COVID-19. This is from Lauren Castle of the Arizona Republic, a reporter, and it was reported on June 12th. Jury trials have been on hold for months, but Maricopa County Superior Court is preparing for the return. Court officials say they've developed a plan to balance individuals' right to a trial and a jury of their peers with efforts to slow the spread of COVID-19. It includes requiring anyone who enters the courthouse to wear a mask and limiting the number of people allowed in each courtroom. We have a constitutional obligation to timely address matters before our court that must be balanced with our ability to safely prevent the continued spread of COVID-19, Judge Joseph Welty said in a statement to the Republic. All courts in Arizona are requiring people to wear masks to enter. Many courts are asking people who are not required to come to court to please stay home. People going into the Maricopa County Superior Court may only attend an in-person hearing if they are permitted by the judge or a party, a victim, a lawyer assigned to the case, a witness in the case, or a juror. The public can listen to proceedings by phone. Law enforcement, couriers, people picking up a signed order, or conducting business with the clerk's office can enter the courthouse. Social distancing remains critical for reducing virus exposure, and the last few months provided us ongoing opportunities to consult local public health authorities for guidance on how best to safely resume operations that cannot currently be held virtually, such as jury trials, Welty said in his statement. The court will continue to follow the advice and recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. At the Maricopa County Superior Court, there are signs outside asking people who are experiencing any symptoms of COVID-19 to not enter. Tim Engelby, the Central Region Commander for, for judicial, judicial Branch Security, said security is checking every person's temperature when they walk inside. 
If a person would like to wear gloves while inside the courthouse, there is a supply at the security line. There are markers on the floors throughout the courthouse reminding people to maintain social distancing. Like in many offices across the area, the court is limiting the number of people who can ride the elevator to four at a time. The court is eliminating shared touch spaces as much as possible by letting potential jurors keep the pencils they use, having people ask for forms instead of leaving them out in a pile, and taking certain items out of the cafeteria area. Serving on juries will be different than it has been in the past. The court has made numerous changes, including decreasing the number of people allowed in the jury assembly room and not using deliberation rooms. Hmm, that should be interesting. Grand juries have already started. The court is working with the County Department of Public Health to determine when new court juries should begin. People have started to receive summonses. The jury assembly room normally holds more than 800 people. It will be limited to 30. Seats are spaced six feet apart, and there are signs posted in the room to remind people to practice social distancing. Nicole Garcia, jury administrator, told the Republic that the court is encouraging people to fill out the jury questionnaire from form online before coming in. They're really helping us in our efforts as well, she said. This will help the court with the pre-screening process. People can alert the court to a hardship or if they do not have time to commit to a certain length of service. Before, those issues were often addressed when the juror was already at the court. Buses driving the jurors from the parking garage to court will only hold 14 people, and the court is encouraging potential jurors to check in with their phones. Social distancing will be maintained in each courtroom. The courtrooms have signs in the gallery alerting where people can sit, and some jurors may actually need to sit in the gallery. Jury deliberation rooms are not able to meet social distancing requirements due to their size, Therefore, some juries will be utilizing unused courtrooms for deliberations. Ah, there's the answer. Last year, the court created a jury bot to answer questions about serving. You can ask the bot questions like, what attire is allowed when serving on a jury? If potential jurors have questions about the coronavirus, they can ask to speak to a live agent. The bot will transfer them to someone in the jury administration office who can help. People are required by law to appear if they do receive a jury summons. State law has very few reasons to excuse a person from jury service. A person is able to fax or email the jury office their excuse for not being able to serve before their service date. If a person is sick, particularly with COVID-19 symptoms, such as fever, coughing, and trouble breathing, and has jury duty, they should call the jury administration office. It is possible to ask for a postponement. Everyone is allowed up to two of them. A person has two chances to respond to their summons. If they do not respond, they will receive a third summons, and if they don't respond by the third summons, they'll be required to appear in front of a judge and explain why they were not able to appear for jury duty. The judge can then fine the person up to $500, and most of the time will require them to complete their jury service. So... I think the lesson there that they're trying to convey is don't think you can get away with it just because of the pandemic and you, maybe you have a little cough. The headline of that article was called up for jury duty. Here's what it will be like under COVID-19. It was reported on June 12th by Lauren Castle of the Arizona Republic. Well, next we have an article that uh, we reported on AZ Law. Arizona's law.org is the website. 
And this was from May 29th. Supreme Court orders a hearing for death row inmate on whether juror misconduct contributed to the second conviction in a notorious Yuma murder case. The Arizona Supreme Court is ordering an evidentiary hearing for death row inmate Preston Strong to determine whether juror misconduct contributed to his convictions for murdering six people in Yuma back in 2005. In a relatively unusual step, the court issued an unsigned en banc decision order putting the appeal on hold until a new Yuma County Superior Court judge looks into, quote, the circumstances of Juror 47's alleged misconduct and knowledge of the Gill murder and prior conviction and whether or not it was harmless. End of the quote. Before the jury trial in 2017 began, juror number 47 had indicated that she had heard of the La Mesa Street murders of two adults and four children. However, she did not tell the judge and attorneys that she also knew that Strong had been convicted of a subsequent murder of a Yuma physician, Satinder Gill. An investigator for the defendant learned of the juror's unrevealed knowledge in a post-trial interview. The trial judge then denied the request for an evidentiary hearing and the motions to undo the guilty verdict. However, citing Ninth Circuit and U.S. Supreme Court opinions, the Arizona Supreme Court found that the judge should have looked into whether the the juror's undisclosed information was possibly prejudicial and whether it impacted the guilty verdict whether it was harmless or not. The court said, harmlessness in this context means that there is no reasonable possibility that the external information influenced the verdict. End of the quote from the opinion. If the state does not show harmlessness, the conviction is unconstitutional and the court must grant the defendant a new trial. If the prejudicial effect of the external information is unclear from the existing record, the trial court must hold an evidentiary hearing to determine the circumstances, the impact thereof upon the juror, and whether or not it was prejudicial. In this case, because Strong established the presumption of prejudice, but it is unclear from the existing record whether he in fact suffered the prejudice, Strong is entitled to an evidentiary hearing, said the court. Strong was sentenced to two life terms in the Gill murder, and he is on death row here in Arizona for the La Mesa Street murders. And that article from Arizona'sLaw.org, Supreme Court orders hearing for death row inmate on whether juror misconduct contributed to the second conviction in notorious humor murders. Well, another article that we reported during the uh, quar- this, the pandemic time, the last few weeks, uh, curfew shortens first day of trial on tax incentives for proposed Phoenix high rise. So not only did we have the pandemic uh, causing issues with the court and with the legal system, but there was the uh, the curfew that was imposed for one week because of the uh, because of some looters and rioters, and not the protesters, but the looters and rioters all hastened to add. Here's the article about the day of the first day of trial on tax incentives for the proposed Phoenix high rise. Arizona's statewide curfew shortened the first day of trial on whether tax incentives for a proposed downtown Phoenix high rise violates the state constitution. Ironically, the virtual trial is happening in a part of downtown impacted by the last several days of violence, while the new tower would be on the undamaged Roosevelt Row area. 
the Goldwater Institute sued the city of Phoenix in 2017 about the proposed Derby-Roosevelt Row project and the city's agreement with the developer that involved at least $17 million in tax incentives through the use of what is called a jeeplet, or geeplet, or however you want to pronounce it, which stands for Government Property Lease Excise Tax. Plaintiffs, including the nearby property owners, claim that the agreement violates the gift clause of the Arizona Constitution and that the city's 1979 designation of the Roosevelt Row area as a slum no longer applies. That would permit the developer to convey the building and the land to the city of Phoenix with the exclusive right to lease it back. It would eliminate the property taxes that they would have to pay and replace it with a lower tax and rent. Additionally, because it is located in Phoenix's central business district, the tax would likely be waived for the first eight years. Somebody visiting the northern edge of downtown in 2015, or now for that matter, would not see a slum in the Roosevelt Row area, Goldwater Institute General Counsel John Riches told Superior Court Judge Christopher Curry in today's opening statements. He also argued that whether the judge accepts the city's numbers or Amstar's or the developer's numbers, it constitutes an inappropriate gift. Either way, it is a grossly disproportionate consideration, he said. Opening for the city, Kristen Winberg listed many of the ways that the city would benefit from the 19-story tower and that it is just one piece of the city's long-term plan for redeveloping the area. The project includes micro-unit apartments of approximately 1,400 square feet each, above-ground parking, and commercial areas. Winberg said that among those benefits are also jobs, unique housing options, that's in quotes, and combines smaller parcels of land in a way fitting contemporary development. The plaintiff's first witness was Kevin McCarthy, the president of the Arizona Tax Research Association. He presented his analysis of the unfair benefits that Phoenix was giving to the developer. He also doubted the city's contention that the incentives were necessary, saying, no one would fill that need in the market without this project seems to escape me, or that no one would fill that need seems to escape me. Amstar is paying the $36 million to develop the tower. It entered into the Jeeplet agreement in 2016. The trial was expected to take up to two weeks. However, that was thrown into the air yesterday with the governor's emergency curfew. Judge Curry announced that he was receiving many emails during that morning session of court, warning him that he and his staff needed to be out of the courtroom by 3.45 so that everybody could get out of the courthouse before the curfew went into effect. And so, and in case there were any protests in the area at that time, let alone riots. And I can update that the judge has finished the trial, conducting the trial. It took almost two weeks, but uh, they are, the parties are now awaiting the judge's decision. He has it under advisement. Well, our next article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, and the headline is, Court Holds Disorderly Conduct Requires That the Victim's Peace Be Disturbed. This was from June 9th. It may sound obvious, but the Arizona Court of Appeals ruled on Tuesday that people cannot be convicted in Arizona of disorderly conduct if they did not actually disturb the peace of those who the police say were their victims. 
The case stems from a 2018 incident involving Bob Preuss and Levi Guffey, a Forest Service supervisor, in a parking lot of the Chino Valley Ranger Station. According to court records, Procease was upset because the Forest Service had closed a road as a fire prevention measure. That led to a confrontation in the rear parking lot where Guffey later testified that Procease was irate, used profanity, and spoke in an elevated voice. The whole incident lasted about 40 seconds. Guffey said his supervisor told him to contact the Chino Valley Police Department as a matter of due diligence. Procease was convicted in municipal court on, bo- on charges of both disorderly conduct and acting in a threatening or intimidating manner. That latter charge was thrown out by a superior court judge, which left the disorderly conduct count in place. Appellate Judge David Gass, writing for the three-judge panel, said that charge, too, had to go. He pointed out that the charges of disorderly conduct applies if a person intends to disturb the peace, engages in fighting, violent, or seriously disruptive behavior. Gass said the Arizona Supreme Court has made it clear that if someone is charged with disturbing the peace of an individual, the state must prove that the individual's peace was indeed disturbed. Further, such conduct does not become criminal under our current statutes unless it disturbs the peace of someone by seriously disrupting something, the judge noted. None of that, Gass wrote, applies here. Guffey was not, in fact, disturbed by Procease's angry words, the judge said. He pointed out that Guffey is a Forest Service supervisor with 14 years experience who testified he deals with irate individuals quite often. And, Gass said, Guffey testified that Procease did not threaten him and that his comments were vague rather than personal. Beyond that, the judge said that what Procease did was not seriously disruptive as the station was closed at the time and its operations were not impaired. Gass was quick to say that the court is not excusing what Procease did. To the extent that he had a legitimate concern about road closures, his method of expressing it cannot be condoned and should not be disregarded, he wrote. And the judge said that the same conduct, if directed at someone else who might have interpreted differently, might have merited criminal charges. But in this case, Gass said, there was no basis for the charge because Guffey was not assaulted, did not feel threatened, Mm -hmm. was not provoked to physically retaliate, and did not feel the need to protect himself. And that was from June 9th. Court holds disorderly conduct requires victims' peace to be disturbed. Well, it looks like we have time for one more article. Let's uh, check this one out from the Arizona Daily Star reporter Tony Davis. And this brings back uh, memories. This has been uh, this has been in the courts on and off for, oh, man, as long as I've been an adult, which is a long, long time. I remember reporting on this back in the 80s. Here's the headline. Feds sued over red squirrel management on Arizona's Mount Graham. Here's the article. A new lawsuit accuses two federal agencies of reneging on commitments to conduct environmental reviews on how 14 summer homes and an abandoned camp on Mount Graham are affecting the endangered red squirrel. The Tucson-based Center for Biological Diversity and two other groups filed the suit on Wednesday. And this was reported on June 12th, so this is this past week. Contending the U.S. Forest Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service violated the Endangered Species Act. The agencies have failed to ensure the two developments don't jeopardize the squirrel's existence or illegally damage its proposed critical habitat, the suit says. 
These issues are particularly acute, the suit says, since the 48,400-acre Fry Fire on Mount Graham in summer of 2017 destroyed a great deal of squirrel habitat and slashed the squirrel's population. The mountain near Safford is about 150 miles northeast of Tucson and it's southeast of Phoenix. The agencies declined comment, saying they don't comment on pending litigation. Also filing the suit in federal court in Tucson were the Maricopa Audubon Society and the nonprofit Mount Graham Coalition. Their suit targets the Forest Service's 2015 okay of a permit that continued to authorize the old Columbine summer home tract, which contains 14 homes on 25 acres. It also targets the Arizona Church of Christ Bible Camp, which lies on 20 acres, about 1,200 feet from the summer homes in the Ash Creek drainage area, in Douglas fir habitat below the mountaintop. The camp's operating permit with the Forest Service is long expired, and the church vacated the property in 2017, the suit says. Still remaining are a dining hall, a generator house, a shower house with septic tank and leach field, a tool shed, two toilet buildings, water and electrical systems, six barracks buildings, and four ramadas. The Forest Service solicited public comments last fall on whether to reissue the permit to the church or to a new applicant. The Mount Graham red squirrel is one of 25 red squirrel subspecies known to exist in North America. Its existence on Mount Graham, its sole home, has been particularly precarious since the 2017 fire, which knocked down its known population from a range of 2 to 300 down to just 35. Ooh. The subspecies has rebounded some. The Arizona Game and Fish Department said a September 2019 survey found 78 squirrels on the mountain, up from 75 a year before. In a news release, Game and Fish called this increase proof that the endangered squirrel continues its fight back and an encouraging sign for its recovery. The lawsuit, however, says, Today, by any metric, the Mount Graham red squirrel is teetering on the brink of extinction because of development of its habitat and the risk of future fires. The groups are taking the federal agencies to task for failing to initiate environmental reviews on the camp and homes. The suit points out that in April 2018, the groups filed a formal notice of intent to sue the agencies. They held off suing, it says, after the agencies told them the review is needed at this time. But today, the suit says, the Forest Service has not started the first step of the review, a biological assessment. The agencies have not responded to a follow-up letter from the plaintiffs seeking an update. While declining comment on the suit, Fish and Wildlife Service's Arizona chief, Jeff Humphrey, said that typically the responsibility to begin such reviews lies with the action agency. In this case, that's the Forest Service, which must approve permits for these projects, he said. Forest Service spokeswoman Heidi Schul declined to say when the work will begin because the issue is now in litigation. And that was from the Arizona Daily Star, June 12th edition. And reporter Tony Davis reporting, feds sued over red squirrel management on Arizona's Mount Graham. Mount Graham, of course, uh, it was in litigation and uh, quite a bit of news back in the 1980s when the University of Arizona was putting an observatory up there, putting some telescopes up there. And with that, 
We reached the end of this broadcast installment of AZ Law, this grand reopening broadcast. Our next broadcast installment will be Saturday, July 18th at 11 a.m. It's the third Saturday of each month that you can hear AZ Law here on Sun Sounds. And in between our monthly broadcasts, look for special on-demand installments. To find them, just go to sunsounds.org and click on the Broadcast Info and Audio tab. Your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcomed, of course, especially since this is one of SunSound's newest programs. Call us at 480-774-8300, or you can email us at info at sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening, and remember to stay tuned to SunSounds of Arizona.